You the only one who made it? Not the only one. Where were you, Shives? Thought I saw Ebert. I went out after him and got lost in the storm. Fires got the temperature up all over the camp. Won't last long, though. Neither will we. How will we make it? Maybe we shouldn't. If you're worried about me... If we have got any surprises for each other, I don't think we're in much shape to do anything about it. Well, what do we do? Why don't we just record a podcast? See what happens. Welcome back, kids. It's time for our second spooky movie for Halloween season here on Late Seating. I am Jason. Could I actually be an alien with squirmy guts and mouths and eyes slurping around inside of my torso harding? And I am Steve. Yes, I'm misshapen, but in the way I'm supposed to be shives. Way to own it. Thank you, Master. We take a classic movie and see if it lives up to its reputation, whether that reputation is good or bad. And this time around, the reputation of this movie was really bad. Then it became good. And then it became known as one of the best movies ever made. Isn't that right, Steve? Yes, it transformed into something else. Into something beautiful that keeps me warm at night. Okay. (laughs) It does. Okay. You think that glow under my blanket is me with a flashlight reading comic books? No, it's me watching this movie. I didn't think you were reading comic books, Master. What did you think I was doing? I thought you were looking at pornography. Well, uh, number one, I would like for you to stop spying on me while I'm in the crypt. Okay, fair enough. I don't spy on you when you lock yourself in the bathroom. No matter how bad I've got to go, and you're in there for hours not making a single sound. I have a medical condition. You have several medical conditions, but I I don't see how you have one that would keep you in the bathroom not making any noise for two hours. Look, you are not a doctor, okay? We have to share this spooky castle together. (sighs) Share means that you allow for some time that I need to go into the bathroom. You can update the plumbing and install another bathroom anytime you want. Look, you you know my diet. It's almost all blood. That means diarrhea bad all the time. I've when I've got to use, I've got to use. There's you know what? We're going to discuss this later. Right now, we're okay. doing a spooky podcast. Yes. Ooh. Let's talk about the movie. Uh, the movie that we are going to review this time. We're not fucking around this time, kids. All the other movies were like, man, they're kind of scary. Or if you're like Steve, you're like, oh, I think an old man who don't like being touched is kind of spooky. Yeah, All the other fair. movies, we've been kind of like, eh, they're not scary. We did the Friday the 13th, and it's like, Bleh. And we yeah. did the Nightmare on Elm Street, and it's like, Bleh. And we did Dracula, which should have been my favorite, but it's boring bullshit. And we watched Frankenstein, which is a good movie movie, but not scary at all. You just like, whoa, that poor monster, man. Pretty much, yeah. But this fucking time, kids, not only is this movie scary, not only is this movie good, not only is it good and scary, It's but... scary and good. <laughs> but it's also my favorite movie of all time, pretty much. I mean... 
the, the third man in this run neck and neck. And they're very it's, different. It's hard to compare. Do a mashup know. of the third man, and when the light the lady turns the light on, it's you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's lime, and then he turns into a bunch of mouths Ooh. and eyes and tentacles. Yes, I like it. The third thing. That oh, that's good. Oh, you like yeah. that? I like it a lot. The movie that we're going to review this time around is John Carpenter's The Thing. Not to be confused with that sellout piece of shit that came out in 2011. Was it 2011? Yes. Has it really been that long? It has been been seven years since that film was released, Master. Oh boy, and boy, boy, oh boy, did it make an impression. (laughs) In a sense, yes. In other words, hey, let's just reboot the whole franchise with the prequel and not change the name of the movie. A little confusing. And, and then let's take a crap all over it and let's let's stick a woman in it for no reason other than we need a woman. Let's not give her anything to do, but she's a woman, right? There, That's good. Are you, are you feminists happy now? We put <laughs> a woman in it. What more do you want? That's right, we're talking about the good one. Also, we're not talking about the 1950s vegetable man smashing things. No. Also, we're not talking about the Tim O'Brien short story collection, The Things They Carried. That's right, we're also not talking about the ever-loving blue-eyed thing from the Marvel comic books. Although he would have come in handy for this. We're talking about The Thing. And now, time for my elixir! (laughs) Thank God I found this elixir, Steve. Yeah, all I have to do is take the the rubber hump off my back. (laughs) And it's like I'm out of character. You know, I just... Wow. My muscles relax, and I'm just like, oh, okay. I'm not here anymore. So that that causes the voice. Well, yeah, but you have to cinch it up so tight, and it kind of, you know... You're more of an outside-in actor rather than an inside-out. Yeah, once I find... Yeah, exactly. Once I find the costume and the makeup, I'm like, okay, now I know who that is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, the movie, anyway. (laughs) Oh, you want to talk about this movie, yeah. Yes, but before we start talking about the movie, I must make a correction. Uh Uh-oh. We've never done this before, but I need to do it because it was an egregious oversight. And that oversight was brought to me by one of our listeners who left it as a comment, and I'm going to bring it up now. Okay. During the Mummy review, I said that Noble Johnson was playing in blackface in The Mummy, and he did that in several films throughout Hollywood history. I was stupidly wrong. How stupidly wrong? Incredibly stupidly wrong. Noble Johnson, who was a black actor Uh and a good friend of Lon Chaney, in 1916 founded the Lincoln Motion Picture Company, an all-black motion picture company, and the first to produce movies portraying African Americans as people instead of just caricatures. And he would fund his movies... Um, by taking his paychecks that he would get in other production companies, like Hollywood production companies, and investing those into his films. He also had an extensive career in in Hollywood. Now, one of the reasons why I I thought he was playing blackface was because the early process for film... um, Actors of color, you know, the, the film process really didn't... If, if you were light enough, skinned enough, you just looked like everybody else. Everyone else was right. kind of a gray color. So it really didn't differentiate between skin tones. So he could play a number of different characters, and he wound up playing a lot of, Arab, you know, 
uh, Arabians and Mexicans and, you know, the right. people of other descent. And then he would also play black characters that were allowed in Hollywood at the time, which were usually tribesmen or the Nubian in right, Mummy. Yeah. And he was also one of those guys that was also a master of disguise, much like Long Chaney. He would put on a lot of makeup and, and do a lot of stuff. So I was completely and totally wrong. I would like to thank the person that pointed that out. And I'm not too big of a guy to say, uh, 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 and admit when I've done something horribly egregious. Noble Johnson, you're a badass, and I'm sorry I did that to you. Steve, do you have anything to say for yourself? I, I'm sorry that I did not catch this mistake. And obviously, <laughs> obviously not, this is, a, this is an important job, correction. But... <laughs> This is an important correction to make because I, I was not aware of, of that, uh, especially of his history mm-hmm. of, uh, of, of how important mm-hmm. he was in bringing African-American actors dignified work and, you know, trying to open up the motion picture industry in the early mm-hmm. years uh, to that demographic. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, our bad. Apologies, yes. and yes. You should be ashamed of yourself when you heard Jason saying those things. You should have slapped him across the face. You should have driven a stake into his heart and cut off his oh. head and pooped down his neck and then opened up his intestines and sprayed them around for the various animals to eat. I have tried to kill him so many times. Just a second. Okay, enough of that. Okay. Now, on to the movie. Steve, ah, yes. do you have any trivia for this relatively unknown film (laughs) it's such a little known film and its production was so uneventful uh-huh. And, um, oh, yeah. Well, I, I do. I have a couple of, of trivia things. Actually, the first bit is it's one of my favorite bits of, of movie trivia. And a lot of people know this. If you've just you know this, if you've seen a couple of John Carpenter's movies, uh, John Carpenter directed this movie that we're about to review, of course. And, and he's yes. also um, perhaps best known for having directed the original Halloween, although it's, yes. it's you know, he's directed a lot of famous movies. But Halloween is probably his most famous movie. Yeah. Um, and in that movie, there is a scene where the uh, the lead character Laurie Strode is watching a movie and the movie she is watching is The Thing from Another World yeah. which is the movie that this movie that we're about to review is a remake of so I thought that was kind of a cool little connection and I believe that was before Carpenter was was connected to the project. Yep. Um, it just sort of happened that way. And I, I, one of those I, things. You love the original. Just one of those movie. things, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I also want to note that um, obviously this movie, in the in, in the ensuing years, once it uh, acquired some appreciation and some fans, uh, it has been very inspirational to other filmmakers. And I just wanted to point out one of my favorite results of filmmakers and writers and people being inspired by the thing is one of my favorite episodes of the X-Files which is <laughs> which is the episode Ice from the first season which uh-huh. has a very very similar plot to <laughs> to the thing it's basically like the X-Files said let's just do the someone thing someone saying that the X-Files really didn't have any original stories Ooh. <laughs> I know it, it's shocking um, but it was a very early episode it was early in the first season and it was one of the first indications that, that fans of the show got that wow this might actually turn out to be a really good show uh, because it's a very strong episode and obviously Obviously, the inspiration from the thing is is very, very easy to see to anybody Mm. who sees it. So there you go. Okay, here's mine. When this movie came out, um, critics didn't like it. They did not like this movie at all. 
And this movie is a living testament to just how absolutely fucking wrong a a uh, consensus of of critics can be. It was described as instant junk. <laughs> yes. A wretched excess. It was proposed as the most hated film of all time. And our good friend Roger Ebert described it as the quintessential moron movie of the 80s. <laughs> well, you know, Roger was, he didn't bat a thousand, you know. He called it a barf bag movie and a <laughs> geek show. So, remember oh, all the times that we've mentioned bad movies where people are trying to resuscitate them where we're like, no, these are still bad movies? Thankfully, thanks to, you know, it coming out uh, on cable and yeah. having it come out on on uh, VHS and DVDs yeah. and stuff like that, and the amount of influence it had on people that actually enjoy movies. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Weird how that can make a difference. Its uh, reputation has not only been successfully resuscitated, many of those critics came back and said, you know what, I was wrong the first time I watched this movie. (laughs) (laughs) And I think I know what caused it. Steve? Yes? Was there anything like the thing before this movie came out? Uh, there were, yeah, there were a few things that were like it in, in certain ways. As, as, as graphic as this? No, not as graphic as this. Not that I can think of. And I think that's what they fixated on. Yeah. I think they fixated on the graphic parts of this film and forgot that there were things like character and story and, you know, uh, you know, that it worked on several different levels as far as a narrative goes and that it was shot beautifully. It's one of probably one of the most beautiful films I can think of. Which is odd saying, you know, it's a horror movie, but it's beautiful. I'm talking about a legit horror movie. I'm not talking about some fucking thing where a merman falls in love with a woman. I'm sure that's fine. We're talking about a goopy monster (laughs) killing people, and it's still a beautiful fucking movie. Yeah. (sighs) I have one other thing. One other little tiny tidbit of trivia. You ready? Ready. Um, This movie is set in Antarctica at an Antarctic station. Every year before the beginning of winter, the Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station screens this movie. (laughs) Oh, good. Wow. God, that's like that's like play that's like playing Sully as the in-flight movie of a fucking transcontinental airplane flight. Yep. All right, let's get on to who made it. Want to find out who made this fuck, all right? Yes, tell me who made the movie. Okay, it was directed by John Carpenter. Now you guys are probably familiar with John Carpenter's films. I like some of them and others are um uh-huh. Uh yeah, they're 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 bad. They're, they're they're bad films, and some are deliciously bad. Like oh. they live. Oh I, yes, the one where Roddy Piper <laughs> and Keith David have the longest fight ever. Yes, yeah, just put beautiful. on a pair of sunglasses. Yeah, like just put the glasses on, man. <laughs> but 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 you see what he's trying to say is how difficult it is to convince something someone of the truth, especially when the the lie of the world is so big that it you know endangers. Yeah, sure. Yeah, there's yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. It's, there's a lot of very heavy thematic content in that scene. But other favorite movie other movies of his that he's directed that I like uh, Halloween oh yeah Escape Escape from New York oh big time this movie Christine which a lot of people have forgotten about but I yeah. actually very much enjoy that movie and has great visuals uh, has great visuals in it is there another one I'm missing is there one I've forgotten uh, I think you've got most of the ones that are unquestionably good a lot of people have there, there's developed kind of a cult following around John Carpenter's vampires over the years but I don't Burr, know if it whatever. quite holds up to <laughs> I don't think it's not quite in the class of the other ones you just mentioned in my opinion yeah it was produced by David Foster and Lawrence Terman Lawrence Terman um, has also produced movies like Short Circuit and uh, American History X. 
and the remake of this movie. And I'm calling it a remake because that's what it fucking is. It's not a prequel. I mean, I know technically it's a prequel, but the right. 2011 was a goddamn reboot, remake, whatever. Well, they I even had the same title. You don't call a prequel to something Thank the Christ same title. It failed because then they would have remade, legitimately remade the thing yeah. as the next movie, right? Well, you would think so, yeah. <laughs> Killing all of the, you know, sense of exploration and discovery in the first, in, in the original by yeah, just basically... <laughs> Yeah, they're gonna visit. They're gonna visit the Norwegian camp, and we all we already saw exactly what happened to it. Uh huh. Yeah. Great. <laughs> oh, cool. Based based on Who Goes There by John W. Campbell. <laughs> oh Excuse my God. <clears throat> I was trying so desperately to keep the sneeze in, and I ruined John W. Campbell Jr.'s name. Oh, no more late night partying for us. It's okay, I'm Master. Don't to Halloween. Don't don't feel bad. You're oh. evil. You're evil. Oh, but that coffin dust, I can't resist it. Put oh. a line of that in front of me. <laughs> John W. Campbell Jr., which is, by the way, a great short story. And if you haven't read it, read it. And also, by the way, this movie follows along with it very closely for the most part. There's some differences a little bit in the alien. But for the most part, the plot and the sense of paranoia and the sense of dread um, uh, translates well into this film from the original short story. And now for the cast. Ah. The greatest cast ever assembled for a film. Other than other than the third man. I do, look, I, I know that I feel the third man getting jealous as I talk about this film. <laughs> Orson Welles is starting to get a little peevish. <laughs> Starring Kurt Russell as R.J. McCready. There are a number of people that they uh, reached out to for this role. You want to hear who they are? I would love to hear who was going to carry Kurt Russell's shoes in this Christopher, movie. Christopher Walken. Okay, wow. <laughs> That would have been different. Would have been a lot different. You'd be like, he's he he's the thing. He's the thing. You're the thing. <laughs> what? No. 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 <laughs> no. He can't even talk English right. Burn him. I. But what about my, my shack? I, I turned off the lights when I left. I have no idea what you're doing right now. You're the thing. What? <laughs> Christopher Walken. Jeff okay. Bridges. I can see that. Yeah. Nick Nolte. Mm, okay. Sam Shepard. That would have been interesting. In fact, um, I have a feeling that someone knew that they were casting the right stuff because you're going to recognize some of these names, Steve. <laughs> Brian Dennehy. Okay. Can't picture that at yeah, all. Yeah, no. But okay. Chris Christofferson. Okay. John Hurd. No. Okay. No. No. Ed Harris. Ah, yeah. Tom Berenger. Mm. Jack Thompson. Mm. Scott Glenn. Ah, now we're okay. Now I see Fred the Ward. Whoa! Now, <laughs> wow. Were they just trying to raid Philip Kaufman? I know. <laughs> like, <laughs> Peter Coyote. Oh, okay. Tom Atkins and Tim McIntyre. Yeah, they I made mean, the right choice. Yeah, I mean, how hard was it to get Kurt Russell? Kurt Russell uh, took, I think, a year to grow out his beard and his and his hair for this movie. Yeah, no fake old beards for for old Kurt. Good for you, Kurt. And while he was doing that, the, the, the majority of these names was the studio going behind Carpenter's back and just saying, "Hey, you want to you want to do this one? You want to do this one?" <laughs> By the way, for those people who think that Kurt Russell doesn't have a range, fuck you. He does too. He's played so many different characters in Carpenter films. He doesn't play yeah. the same dude. He's he's one of the most low key, versatile actors I think in Hollywood of the last thirty or forty years. He doesn't get credit for being no. versatile, but if you watch the work, yeah, he's mm -hmm. doing a lot of different stuff. McCready isn't isn't the same dude from uh, Big Trouble in Little China, nor oh, is no, he Snake Plissken. <laughs> oh, he's definitely not Snake. Yeah. Well, no one could be Snake, but Snake. Yeah. No. 
All right, here we go. <laughs> Wolfer Brimley as Blair. It's the right You're thing not, to do. You, if you've not seen this movie and you only know him from Cocoon and those those cereal commercials and diabetes. <laughs> Number one, he doesn't have his mustache. Yeah. Number two, this is probably the best acting I've seen him do in a film, to be quite honest. At least a, a movie that allowed him to do stuff. He was a relative unknown when he, when he made this movie. He had yeah. done, like, a few other films. T.K. Carter is Nalls. Um, you guys will recognize Nalls. He's been on TV a lot. Punky a Brewster. Lot really? He was in Punky Brewster, yeah. How did you know that? Because I watched Punky Brewster. Oh, okay. Oh, I, I didn't know we were going to get really scared during this one. Okay, David <laughs> Clennon. I've been doing a podcast with him for four years and just now find out he watched Punky Brewster. David Clennon is Palmer, another guy from TV that you guys will all yeah. recognize. Keith David is yeah. Childs. Keith David had been in one other movie. He was like an uncredited cameo in, I think, Disco Godfather or something like that. Um, so this was his big role, and you guys will know him from everything else. He was Goliath. What was the name of the fucking gargoyle? Oh, Goliath? yes, the gar- gargoyles. Yeah, he was the voice of Goliath. Yeah, He was the voice of Goliath That's on right. gargoyles. And he he's also become like the default narrator for Ken Burns yeah. documentaries. He was, he was the voice of baseball and baseball by Ken Burns and the voice of jazz for the jazz. The voice of jazz, yeah. He's got a great voice. But guess who else they wanted for this one? Oh, who they, else? They had some other people. Jeffrey Holder. Hmm. Carl Weathers. Oh, no. hey. No. Very no. different. Very different type. <laughs> but, I mean, I'm never going to say no to putting <laughs> Carl Weathers in something. Bernie Casey. <laughs> Isaac Hayes. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay, can we stop for a second? Oh, baby. <laughs> I can't. Wow. I can't picture Isaac Hayes in this movie. No, me neither. And Ernie Hudson. Oh, Ernie because there were five black guys in Hollywood, apparently. <laughs> and, they, and they just read all of them. <laughs> Richard Dysart as Copper, and you'll know him from L.A. Law, I yeah. think. That's about it. Um, Charles Hallen as Norris, another guy you'll recognize from TV. A lot of TV, mm-hmm. actually. Um, Peter Maloney as George Bennings, TV again. Um, and also he was kind of, I think this is the guy that was like a playwright and a bunch of other stuff too. He was like, he did a lot of like, he was apparently one of the best acting instructors in Hollywood at the time as well. Um, Richard Masser is Clark. You'll recognize him from TV too. <laughs> and he's also, uh, he will become uh, the Screen Actors Guild president of the Screen Actors Guild Union. Donald Moffat. Oh, Donald Moffat. <laughs> Why can't you still be alive? He was quite prolific. Donald Moffat is Gary. Now, Donald Moffat, you guys may know from... He played Mr. Halcyon in Tales from the City, which was the yeah. series on TV. He did a lot of TV stuff. He did a lot of movie stuff. He did this movie, which is like where I actually started liking him as an actor, and then he followed up that first punch with the second one, where he played, <laughs> where he played President Johnson in The Right Stuff, and played yes. him so well. In the right stuff. Um, oh, yeah. And he also played the make-believe president in the film of Clear and Present Danger, where he has one of my favorite takes of any schlocky action movie ever, where he says to Jack Ryan, How dare you come in here and bark at me like some junkyard dog? I am the president of the United States! <laughs> anyway, he's that guy. Yeah, he's good. Joel Polis's Fuchs did some stuff. Not a whole, Not a whole lot of stuff. And Thomas Waiters as Windows. Oh, sorry, Thomas Waits. Uh, not that Tom Windows. Waits. Yeah, not that. No. Oh, I'm going by Thomas Waits now. <laughs> 
as Windows. And by the way, since no one ever noticed, we have one character in this movie named Mac and another <laughs> named Windows. Total coincidence. Has nothing to do. There's nothing to be read into that because neither one of those companies fucking existed. Yeah. It's 1982. Total coincidence, but kind of cool. But I like to think that somewhere the executives of both of those companies were watching this movie and they walked away <laughs> with two completely different ideas. You know, like Bill Gates thought that Windows was the protagonist. He was like, that yeah. guy. Hey, that's <laughs> my guy. He's the one. He's the one that's all about electronics and getting, getting communicating with people. <laughs> <laughs> Music by Ine- oh boy. Ineo Marimbula. You say it's too. Come on. He's only one of the most famous composers I ever. I know, but I can never say his name correctly. En- Ineo Morricone. En- Ineo Morricone, yeah. And he's famous for uh, the mu- the music for the Dollars Trilogy. Yeah. The Untouchables. Um, he's he's done a lot of stuff. And the funny thing about this mu- music is, is that he wrote it without having seen a cut of the film. So what he basically did was he made a bunch of tonal pieces, you know, basic mood pieces, and gave them to John Carpenter and said, here, use this wherever you need when you get around to finally cutting it. Because there was a post-production process with all the special effects in this um, that were going to take a while. So, uh, once again, John Carpenter likes to say that his music is wallpaper. Maybe one of the reasons why I like his films (laughs) is because that's how music is supposed to be used. Not like when you're Steven Spielberg, where it's half the fucking movie. (laughs) You're like reaching out and choking the audience. (laughs) feel something slap (laughs) oh you're crying good and also um, there's John Carpenter more than likely came in and did some stuff because a lot of people have commented oh so you got uh, Morcone to do this the score and what he basically did was he created a John Carpenter score <laughs> very simple and kind of you know I love this score I love it oh it's a beautiful score and you know speaking of uh, how it took this movie a while to gain the the critical acclaim that it has now the the score the Morricone score was actually nominated for a Razzie that year for worst score yeah. can you believe that I mean yeah, such a great and score Quentin Tarantino used some of the unused portions of Morricone's score for the Hateful Eight. Yeah, it's it's a fantastic score. It mm-hmm. really is. Yeah. Um, edited... Oh, wait, no. Cinematography by Dean Cundey. Dean had a pretty good career renaissance during the 80s and, and 90s. He also um, did cinematography for Roger Rabbit and Jurassic Park. And, uh, boy, he's earning his money in this one because this, as I said before, this is a fucking beautiful movie. I know. It's about a goopy monster that kills guys. <laughs> but it's still a beautiful movie. And I didn't appreciate how beautiful it was until I threw away that piece of garbage DVD that I'd based basically worn down to the nub and got a Blu-ray version of this movie and put it in and went, oh, colors and crispness. I forgot it. It's good. I like it. <laughs> if you guys can, try to see a high-definition version of this film. It is it's it is actually so well shot. And lit. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, edited by Todd Ramsey. I got nothing on him. And here's something that I had to add in because I can't believe that this is not included as the base credits for this film. Special effects. Yeah. By Rob Botton and a little bit of help from St- uh, Stan Winston. You guys know who Stan Winston is. He made the Mother Alien and the Aliens movie. He made all those fucking dinosaurs in Jurassic Park and slowly watched as a new technology pushed him out of the way and said, we don't need real things on set no more. We, ch- we just <laughs> we just want computer things. <laughs> 
Rob Botton was 21 when he made this movie. Mm. 21 fucking years old. He was so dedicated to the effects of the film that he started sleeping on the set and working himself to exhaustion. So much so that when it was done, um, Carpenter hospitalized him for, uh, I think it was exhaustion, and he had an ulcer, and he was probably malnourished because he openly admitted that he was living off of, I think, Coca-Cola and and candy bars at the time. (laughs) But I would like to say, Rob, holy shit. <laughs> you have made something that every single special effects person points to and says, that's that's what we that's what we should always be doing. It should be that. Not <laughs> don't get me wrong, guys. When CGI is good, it's good. Oh sure. But ninety nine percent of the time is not good. <laughs> you know what CGI is becoming, weirdly? It's becoming right. how we used to look at stop motion. Yeah, I, I can kind of see what you're saying there, yeah. Except now we look at stop motion and go, oh, look how beautiful that is. Yeah, look at the craftsmanship. Oh. <laughs> they didn't just type some numbers one, into a computer to make one that. One guy working in his garage yeah. making these movies. Look, you can see the fingerprints. Yeah, I think yeah. one of the things that I think one of the big things, and I, we'll just say this here before we do the actual review, all of, this, all of the effects in here are, are practical effects with, I think, about two and a half seconds of stop motion animation. Yeah. For some tentacles at one point. Yeah. Um, the thing that links practical effects, in-camera effects, yeah. and stop motion, which is also an in-camera effect, is that you can tell that there was a certain level of craftsmanship and and um, hands-on attention to detail when it's done well. The thing about CGI is that I always I know that there are artists that are working on it, but I also know that there are several thousand. Yeah, it seems like lots and lots and lots of people. And while they can turn in something really great and something very convincing and all of that other stuff, I I, I feel that you the, the 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 idea that there are artists working on practical effects is more more um, apparent if that makes sense at all. It's yeah. like the difference between being seeing a sculpture in person and looking at a picture of a sculpture, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know how you feel about it. You probably well, love it. Or <laughs> no, I, I was just – I was thinking uh, we, we realize this now or a, a wider audience realizes these sorts of things now because of making of featurettes on DVDs and things like that. But yeah. un- unless you were already interested in it and you subscribe like to, to special effects magazines or horror magazines, you might mm-hmm. not have realized that – the the artists who created practical effects for horror movies and sci-fi movies in the 70s and 80s particularly when it was sort of the golden age of of that generation um are some of the most dedicated artists mm-hmm. at, at in any realm of filmmaking and not only yeah. are they dedicated to to what they're making and just trying to come up with a cool creative creature but they 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 have internalized things like story and character and motivation so that what they're creating will work and will fit yeah. in the world that the director is creating and they are some of the most dedicated artists in filmmaking and yeah. yeah and and there are there are some cgi artists that are the same way but with, yeah. the, with practical effects because they're built by a much smaller team you have that that personal touch come through a lot more whereas like you said i mean look at the the end credits of a marvel movie where it you, just you, goes on fucking forever. yeah you, you get to that wall of text and those are mm-hmm. the, the visual effects artists and it has to and be the that other way thing because, is, is that a lot of those people are like i do textures Right. I'm like, okay, great. You did the textures. And who did the overall? Who was the overall lead in the look of the thing? Or the, and it's like, it, it's and I grant it. It's amazing that they all can come together and create something really great. But um, 
when you watch these films, you get a you see the team that's doing these effects, and it's yeah. like five guys in t-shirts. Yeah, and know, they staying do up really late. At yeah, night. exactly. They do sleep on the on the studio floor. They do work themselves to exhaustion, and and they mm-hmm. and they are absolutely committed to mm-hmm. ma- doing the best job they can and making it work for the film. It's really and the things like, they pull off for this yeah. film. Oh, hadn't been done prior and haven't been done hasn't been done since with this level of success and that's including yeah. CGI. So that's a I, we're getting off our hard house now. Blump. Anyway, <laughs> Uh, production company, the Terman Foster Company, distributed by Universal Pictures. It was released on June 25th, 1982. Hey, Steve, guess what else came out that day? Oh, I, I think I know this. It was uh, Blade Runner. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. How about that? It was underappreciated sci-fi film day. So at the end of this movie, if you were feeling um, uh, at all... Feeling it all upbeat, you could go ahead and kill that right off by walking right into Blade Runner, right? <laughs> Blade Runner can't possibly be as bleak as this was. I mean, it's got Harrison original, Ford in it. Well, it depends on which well, edit you're watching, but that's the true. original release was like, oof. Don't worry, guys. We'll we'll review that eventually. <laughs> Hello, how? Yeah, we're not going to be able to keep to get away from it yeah. forever. Yeah, I know. We keep running, and he keeps chasing. Ah, oh, God, Decker. I told you. I know what a turtle is. <laughs> 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 All right. Okay. All right. Running time: one hundred nine minutes. Budget: fifteen million. Box office: nineteen point six million. So it made its budget back, but probably not its advertising costs. Yeah. Now there are a number of people who gave reasons as to why this movie didn't go over well. Maybe it was the fact that critics, having seen all the gory, gross stuff, had a fucking panic attack and then pounded on their keyboards talking about how awful this was, and they all kind of dogpiled on this film because they were afraid that other movies were going to come like this. There was nothing they could do to prevent it. They should have just watched the movie and appraised it on on its merits rather than focusing on the gross stuff, which is what the majority of them seem to have done, right? Oh, yeah. Um, but there's other reasons. Because this 1982 is a great year for movies, right, Steve? It's a great year for movies. Oh, absolutely. Unless you were the thing which yeah. was about an alien that's goopy and gross and blows and gets in people and, and it tears itself apart. Oh, boy, it's yeah, so gross. For, for some reason, people in 1982 didn't want to see a movie about goopy, creepy killer aliens. No, they wanted what, Steve? They wanted feel-good, warm, fuzzy, be-your-best-friend aliens. Yeah, they wanted little aliens that looked at and acted like a baby. Yeah. And... and, and and had magic and glowy fingers. People, magic glowy figures that healed people. Yeah. Not me. <laughs> although I did cry a lot during that movie. I was so thankful that the thing came out, dude. Oh, boy, this feeded a different part of me than I than E.T. could ever give me. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I would hope it didn't feed the same part. <laughs> this movie made me feel good, too. <laughs> uh, all right, Steve. Yes. Now... Put on your winter gear. Oh, boy. And let's head out to the Antarctic, where creepy things are afoot, where those sneaky Norwegians have been doing some creepy stuff with the spaceship <laughs> and made a bunch of critical errors that we don't need to explain outright, right? It's not no. like we need to make a prequel film no. explaining what happened, right? Backstory should stay in the back. That's right. Anyone who tries to make a movie about the backstory should be locked in a coffin and pushed into the ocean. I'm looking at you, Lucas. 
Can we please anyway, stop with the prequels? We already know what's going to happen. Just go forward, please. I'm not going to worry about what happens to Han Solo in Chewbacca in a prequel movie, am I? No. I don't care. Save that shit for the comic books. <laughs> And let's run into the world, the frozen terror, where the warmest place to hide is man. I'm pretty sure that was on the poster, right? <laughs> okay. Yeah, all right, that's great. I don't know what that means, but let's go. Okay, sure. Into the body horror, because it is kind of a body horror movie. Yeah. Of the thing. Steve? Take it away. We begin with spooky white on black text credits. Yay. Hey, Steve, it's a universal picture. It is. It is. It's a universal picture. And they didn't waste any of their 15 million on the credits. They really need a mascot named Globy who comes on at the end. Hey, kids. It's a universal picture. Gives a thumbs up and a wink. (laughs) Ding. Hope you enjoyed the flick. (sighs) <sighs> yeah, so we get the credits, very modest, yep. very like, you know, hey, black on white. Up until a point, very modest. <laughs> white on black, here's who in it. Yeah, here's who's in it. Yeah, and then we cut to space. Uh-huh. And a spaceship flies past. and fl- What a and- way to ruin the mystery movie. Yeah, oh, so, okay. I guess it's the spaceship thing. Oh, God. It's an alien. Whoopee. They could have easily just taken off the... Just a second. My my son's alarm is going off, or it's his medicine alert. There we go. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, they could have clipped off the whole opening of Predator off of this, (laughs) because Predator opens the same fucking way. Yeah. Hey, guys, fuck you in the and, and the mystery of this movie. We're just going to put a spaceship so you guys don't get confused, okay? Yeah, yeah. And and then we get the the title, which is not a basic title card where the, the, oh, no. the title, like, it's like the fabric of the universe rips open and <laughs> and the title comes out. And, uh, yeah, we're this looking, is yeah. what Steve was saying. It says John Carpenter's The Thing. It doesn't matter that you can kind of see the flames that they're using to melt the, the, yeah. the tidal wave from the black... Pe- I don't know how they did it, but it, it involved fire, I guess. Yeah, but it's a really cool effect. It looks like we're, we're looking at the, uh, you know, the, the, un, the unearthly glow behind reality yeah. itself. You know? That's I mean, right. It's, it's really cool. You're glimpsing into the mysteries of the universe, and they're gross. Yeah, and they're going to get grosser. <laughs> hey, Steve. Yeah. I think we're in Antarctica now. I think so. Antarctica uh, in the winter. And and I think it's 1982. Uh-huh. Because the movie tells us. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you got to orient your audience. You got to let them know. Hey, Steve, if you took off 1982 off of Antarctica, mm-hmm. would it make any fucking difference when this movie was released? Not really. <laughs> Not really. No. <sighs> and we're watching... Um, the uh, new Olympic event, which is the 400-meter helicopter dog shoot event. <laughs> yeah, and these these guys are not going to be the gold medalists because... No, Norway is not doing well this no, time around, Steve. they cannot hit that dog. That is, is the hardest to kill dog this in the point, history of uh, the movies. You know, the Americans managed to shoot three dogs in four minutes. Norway is having a bad run this time around, Steve. I mean, this dog is just taking them for a ride, if you want to know the truth. They've had <laughs> so many chances to, to shoot this dog. It stumbled a little while back, and they just cannot close this. looking back at him like, you fuckers. <laughs> 
You know, I, I think that at one point the dog actually paused and defecated in the snow <laughs> while the Norwegian rifleman was reloading. I think this dog knows exactly what, what he's doing. Considering what we know about this dog, I don't want to imagine what would be. Ah. <laughs> yes. Wow, that is a good imitation. <laughs> anyway, they're chasing this husky dog yeah. across, the, across the thing. And since the husky dog, uh, we never give a name, I'm giving the husky dog a name. And I'm going to name him Husko. Oh. Don't explain it. <laughs> they better be careful. I'm just going to say that. I don't care. Don't, Come at me. They, they, better, they better not shoot Husko or they're going to have. They're going to be hell to pay. <laughs> So Husko's uh, running across the, the frozen waste, being shot at by a helicopter, and uh, also they got grenades, and yeah. so they start throwing grenades. And they can't kill the dog with fucking they- grenades either. <laughs> no, one grenade goes off like yards away, and it's like, what were you shoot? What were you throwing at? <laughs> anyway, the dog runs up to a sign, and the sign says, "United States National Science is Fun Place <laughs> yeah. Number Four. Although it's usually referred to as U.S. Outpost Number Thirty One. Thirty One, yeah. It's a it's a science research station. Yeah, people like to go to Antarctica and, and do shit. Yeah, I don't know what they it's, do. It's filled with and they rugged. Look outside and go. Nope, it's still snow. <laughs> science. Although it's been getting getting more exciting over the last few years yeah. thanks to climate change. Oh, there's <laughs> less ice now. <laughs> um, and we cut in and we meet McCready. Yes, and. Uh, He's playing. Uh, he's playing chess with a computer. Yeah, and he's not a good loser. No, he's not. Because computer's got this sexy voice, and I know it's sexy because it's Adrian Barbeau's yeah. voice. Yeah. And she's like, "I beat you." And he, what does he do? He kills the computer with scotch. <laughs> yes, he does. <laughs> he pours his scotch into the computer. He's like, "Ah, fuck you." Also, everybody, that's the only female character in the movie. And she's dead. And she's dead. <laughs> now, are Steve and I going to go on and on about how there should be a female character in this movie? Nope. Why? Because it, putting a lady in in a research station in 1982 doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you were making it today and you wanted to yeah, then do a, you could. Yeah. yeah. But, it would yeah. make a lot more sense, but in 1982, the the likelihood of there being a female scientist out there was very, very was not as high as it would be now. Right, right, right. Because it's 1982, and now that we said 1982 15 times, we we can get away with as much sexism as we That's want. That's right. We we could be judged by the standards of the time. Anything goes. That's right, baby. Anyway, <clears throat> so he kills his computer. Yeah. And um, then he comes outside because he hears a helicopter. And other guys come out from the base, and they're looking at the helicopter, going, look at that helicopter flying around. <laughs> and they just kind of watch it fly around. And then Husko comes running in out of the cold and jumps up on one of them, and he's got an adorable face. Yeah, it's a doggy. Come on. Huskies are adorable dogs. And he's like, please don't let the bad men shoot me. <laughs> So the the helicopter lands, and um, oh, it turns out it's a Norwegian helicopter. Yeah. I think we said that earlier. Yeah. And um, one guy gets out with a gun to try to shoot the dog, and the other guy uh, is going to throw a grenade, and he has a little oopsie moment oh, with the grenade. Yeah. Oops. He drops it. And he drops it in the snow, and then instead of running away screaming, he tries to dig the grenade out, <laughs> and it, it explodes. And if you're watching the yeah. film... You can literally see his body get shot into the air. Yeah. That's that John Carpenter 
attention to detail. Yep. Yeah. No, we need a body in there. Yep. Yep. Grenade explodes, helicopter explodes, but other dude is yelling at him in Norwegian, and then he just kind of opens fire on all of them, trying to shoot the dog. Yeah. He grazes, uh, who does he get? I think he Benning? gets Bennings, yeah. Yeah, Benning gets grazed by a bullet. And Gary, who's the station commander, is looking through a window, and then he just busts the window open with his gun. And I'm like, Gary, you're going to have to pay the government for that window. Yeah, you really want to be breaking windows in Antarctica, Gary? Yeah. Um, but he busts open the window, and then he shoots his gun and shoots the other, the other Norwegian dude right in the eye. And everyone's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> just another day in Antarctica. Well, actually, McCready sums it up pretty well. What does he say? Uh, doesn't he say a f- first fucking week of winter? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, McCready. But, but all these deaths and explosion, we have one good thing to come away with it, and that is, at the very least, is that Husko is safe. Yes. Right? Absolutely. And I'm sure that he will be a beloved pet and companion for many years to come. That will fall into legend and maybe other huskies will form a religion around him. It's quite possible. Don't explain it. It's quite possible. <laughs> I've heard things. People are like, is there, a, is there an inside joke? <laughs> Jason's like daring Steve to not reveal? <laughs> well, they know there is now. Well, yeah, there is. I'm trying to drive. You We're know, talking about an inside joke. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, actually, I'm just trying to... Uh, no, I'm going to yeah. drop it. I was going to say, I'm trying to get your wife on to do the character. <laughs> she has not been prepared. I know. Anyway, then we find out yeah. that Windows can't reach anybody on the phone. Oh, Windows. Or the radio. He said, we've been out of communication for the last two weeks. I can't reach anybody on this continent because everything here sucks. <laughs> they right? should let Mac try because I hear Mac is more reliable than Windows. Anyway, <laughs> so <laughs> I I ad libbed that. By the way, that wasn't so, a pre written joke. Just so everybody I knows, I see that you're so good. You're so good. No, I was I was I was offering that as an excuse. You should be writing for the Tonight Show in 1985. <laughs> the, the, the shitty jokes are ad libs, folks. I can't be held responsible. <laughs> if it's if it was really good, then I wrote that, and that's just part of my genius. So now we start meeting people. We meet Nalls, who yeah. is the cook. Yeah. And uh, he's a big fan of Xanadu because he's on <laughs> rolly skates. Roller he's, guy. Yeah, roller guy. Um, and they're like, well, we killed these guys. It's weird. They're from this Norwegian base. It's not too far away. It's about an hour out. We can get there. And Copper's like, yeah, we better go because these guys were acting all cuckoo crazy. And they they go, well, let's go. And they have to talk to him. <laughs> okay, so we meet some other people, right? Yeah. We meet the, the resident stoner and other helicopter pilot, because I guess they have two. And that's uh, Palmer. Palmer, yeah. And he's like, he's baked. You can tell already. <laughs> he just looks baked. And he's like, I'll go. And they're like, nope. And he's uh, another good line. He's like, well, they immediately say no. And he goes, well, thanks for thinking about it, though. <laughs> They convince uh, they convince McCready to fly Copper out there to make sure that the Norwegians are okay. Right, and then we fly out and we establish more that this is indeed Antarctica. <laughs> God damn it! I miss movies that are shot shot with an idea of a location, like an actual place, Steve. Like it's actually filmed somewhere. Yeah. I know that they're not in Antarctica. They're up in Alaska. They're in Alaska, yeah. But you know what? Um, Close enough. Well, yeah, no. <laughs> it's like exactly 26,000, I mean, however many miles it is, 12,000 miles away. Yeah, but it's basically the same. Well, they wanted to be able to stay in hotels and stuff when they weren't. Yeah, uh, you know. <laughs> these spoiled Hollywood people. Whatever. 
So, uh, meanwhile, while Mac and Copper are gone, Husko uh, takes a walk around the base, and he makes a friend. Yeah, he he we, makes a friend with, um, oh, what's, who's the guy he makes a friend with? Um, nobody. We don't know, because it's just a silhouette. Oh, that's right. Yeah, he just walks into somebody's room, and we don't we don't find because out exactly who it is. Yeah, there's a word other than, oh my god, that's gross, or I, I what, for this movie, the, the word would be ambiguous. Yeah. Intentionally ambiguous. We don't know who who Husko wins to go find. We just see a silhouette. Yeah. And so then we come back, and uh, the helicopter lands at the Norwegian camp, and the Norwegian camp is um, all fucked up, Steve. Oh, yeah. Yeah, some doings have transpired here. Yeah, and we didn't know it yet, but this camp is foreshadowing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything's kind of blown up and, and burnt up. And and Copper and McCready go inside and they find um, the Norwegians' research. Yeah. And they find a dead dude. Yeah. Who uh, com- don't guys don't commit suicide when it's freezing cold because you leave a really gross, weird corpse. Yeah, he's got blood sickles hanging off of him. Yeah, it's not, not cool. Good. Yeah. So they find the dead dude, and then they find an ice coffin. Yeah. And then they find um they find a uh, they find it uh. A person, a a body. (laughs) Yeah, it's like a twisted, like melted. It's like someone took five people and kind of, if they were made out of silly putty, and just kind of (laughs) partially compressed them into like a a thing. Guys, their defies description also works really well in this movie. Okay, yeah, because there are things in here where you just like if you had to go back and solve, and then they found this body, but it wasn't a body because it was all like arms and hands, and the face was all stretched out, and it was gross. And I threw up a little in my mouth, and I <laughs> I told this projection guy, please please pause the film for a second, but I guess he didn't hear me. <laughs> I just needed a moment to process. You don't get a chance to process. So they find they find the the uh, the gross <laughs> the whatever it is yeah, and they go like hey let's bring it back to camp <laughs> let's take it home for science yeah because Blair needs something to do yeah and it's gross and 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 Blair likes gross stuff I guess yeah I he's a gross and, creepy old man let's he'll love this so they bring it back and they uncover it and it's all weird and they're like we want an autopsy and I'm like on this mass of legs and faces <laughs> like, what you- <laughs> I don't even know where I'm supposed to make the incision and they're all talking and oh hey look Husko's there hi Husko yeah, what's doing just observing oh, just, the autopsy yeah staring at us creepily <laughs> like you do everything huh Husko <laughs> what a bright dog cut back and Windows still doesn't know how to use the phone ah uh, yeah it's not even plugged into the wall Windows yeah but other than that everything pretty much returns back to normal at the camp people playing pool playing cards they're watching porn and uh, they're smoking pot or if they're not watching porn they're watching old VHS tapes of the prices right yeah let's make a deal oh is it yeah, let's, let's make I'm a sorry. deal yeah I'm sorry how dare I, you I how dare you confuse I'm, Monty Hall for I, Bob Barker I don't know aren't they the same person no 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 damn you they're not <laughs> Which one was the one where Wink Martindale was on? Was that Tic Tac Toe? Oh man, what Wink Martindale was on everything. I think he might have done Tic Tac Toe. Yeah. Who who hosted the Joker's Wild? Oh, sh- you're so you're testing my game show knowledge, <laughs> and I'm not sure. I don't even know what game show was. No whammies because we didn't have it on the West Coast. Ah, uh, you know what? One of them was Gene Rayburn. I'm pretty sure. Well, Gene Rayburn. Oh, I he mean, was. You know. Someone said, "Hey, you can drink and host a game show. You want to do that?" And he's like, "Yes, <laughs> got it." Dibs. 
the only show where you could guarantee that every single person on that show had whiskey on their breath. Yeah. Well, and then there was match game where it's like it's not even a game. Where it's are just we going? I, every time I think, okay, we're done with this. This is nothing to do with famous the people to talk. <laughs> well, he no, it's because he was watching a game show, so it oh, fits right, perfectly. Right. Then that merited a ten minute conversation. Exactly. It fits. It's an elegant and completely justified digression. Right. Okay. So Clark decides to put Husko in with the other dogs. And yeah, they can't just have a dog wandering around loose right. with right. the people. Yeah. yeah. Husko goes in, and he's acting a little creepy, and the other dogs are just like, oh, hey, buddy. And they're like that for a couple of seconds. <laughs> and, and then, then Husko... Um, he, well, he, what he uh, does is... He, uh, Husko does... Uh, <laughs> he, he peels his own he, face <laughs> off like a banana. Okay, his face opens up. <laughs> Like a flower, yeah, exposing a skull which drops off, and instead of the middle part of the flower, it's just the tongue, <laughs> yeah, and then tentacles and spider legs jump out of its body, and yeah. it starts shooting jism <laughs> like sp- on the other dogs, spitting or at the other dogs, yeah, yeah, it goes south pretty quick. The other dogs want out, they don't like this new dog, <laughs> open the door. Clark hears it. He doesn't know what to do. And then McCready hears bad goings on because now there's an uh, inhuman sound. Yeah. And dogs barking. And he pulls the fire alarm. And he runs up. And they're all just kind of hiding in the corridor. They don't want to see what's going on. And one of my favorite lines in the movie is he he asks Clark what's going, what's in there. And he says, I don't know, but it's weird and pissed off. <laughs> Thanks for your help, Clark. And uh, Mac asks for... Uh, Ask for childs to bring the flamethrower. That's always a good sign. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they 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 come they come in and they 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 look into the kennel and um, they see oh it's a um is a thing with stuff on it. It's got eyes that just pop out of it on just the body. Ra- <laughs> yeah, just random places. Yeah, and, and yeah, and then it grows like a couple of arms that shoot up and 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 grab onto the roof. Yeah, and, and it's it's huge. It's it's it's, it's not way that, bigger I mean, than a dog. Pretty, yeah, it's not it's that way much bigger, bigger than, than a dog. Than a dog. No, it's not. It's not gigantic. Well, but it's like stretching out everywhere. I mean, yeah, it's yeah, not, it is. Kind of, yeah, because yeah, tentacles are growing everywhere, yeah. and they're wrapped around the other dogs, poor dogs, and and um, they start shooting the dogs. Clark does not like that at all. Kind of like you're doing those dogs a favor, dude, because yeah. they're pretty messed up. A couple they're of the dogs do manage happy. to get out. They do yeah. escape. And then um, they tell uh, Charles to put the flamethrower on it, and he's kind of mesmerized as like a hole opens up in the thing. And then a flower comes out, and then it opens up, and there's teeth inside. Yeah. And then he burns it. He burns it. He's, he burns it. He burns it. That thing would have given Salvador and Dolly nightmare. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> Just think of all the LSD they had to take to come up with that character design. I'm fairly certain none. there was none of that involved. That's 100% pure 21-year-old eating candy bars and drinking Coke. <laughs> Yes, that's, yes. Actually, that whole sequence was uh, Stan Winston. Stan was, Winston uh, worked on it because the other guy was dying. The other guy was literally <laughs> killing himself for the movie, and they needed someone to step in and help out with some of the stuff. Yeah. Who boy? So it was. That was uh, a, it was. Ta- it was taken off of a doodle on the back of a high yeah. school textbook book yeah. cover. <laughs> so they've they've managed to find something else that's, that's gross. So B- B- Blair gets to cut it up again. 
Hey, guess what, Blair? We got got another one for you, buddy. Yeah, this time he's not having a good time just doing an investigation. On the previous body, he found, like, normal organs, right? He's like, oh, yeah. look, heart, liver, I recognize this stuff. This time around, Blair looks like he's going to throw up and cry. <laughs> oh, yeah. He can't even finish cutting through it, and he's just like, oh, oh. Yep, yeah. and all the other guys are like, boo. And so now we get to our first kind of exposition point, where Blair gets to tell us all about the alien's gross personal habits. And what are those gross personal habits, Doof? Well, apparently what it does is it, it eats other life forms and then makes and takes their form, like imitates their shape. It actually assimilates them, Yeah, from what I understand. Their cells replace the cells in the person, and then they uh, yes. create a replica. Yes, well, that, that is what we learn later from the, the very helpful computer display brought yeah. to us by the exposition comp. <laughs> Anyway, so it's, he says that it was trying to imitate the dogs, and when they would have come back, it would have been the same number of dogs, except all of them would have been alien, gross. Right. The, the, the word I'm trying to re- not use is things, but I'm going to have to start using it because there's no other descriptive word. The thing is an appropriate title. That's what up, they, There's nothing else they could have called it, yeah. And uh, so Blair then starts questioning Clark about the dogs and how much time he's spending with them. And congratulations, everyone. You've made it to the paranoia and mistrust segment of the film. Yeah. This is when it starts. And then the gang all sits down to watch Norway's funniest doomed expedition videos in which (laughs) they find out that they found something out in the ice, right? Yeah. And then he set off some explosive charges. And McCready goes, I'm going to go out there. And he takes Norris and another guy. Who's the other guy? Um, in in my uh, synopsis, I'm looking at it says it was Palmer, but I it, okay, I, it was it's hard to Palmer. tell from the shots. Yeah, yeah, because they're all wearing Arctic gear. Yeah, and uh, oh, by the way, McCready wears this gigantic sombrero. Yeah, which helps differentiate him from everybody else when they're <laughs> in their Arctic gear. Right. <laughs> um, but then they fly out there and they find a used spaceship. Yeah, and a, a big crater in the ice where the Norwegians had blown it out. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's been there for a while. It's been there for like 100,000 years. Yeah. And yeah. they also find out where the space coffin came from because they find that in the ice too, right? Yeah, and I, I guess they, they estimate that what the alien escaped from the crashed ship and then froze in the ice when he was trying to get away. So they go back yeah. to base. Yeah. McCready's trying to tell him what they found, and Childs doesn't believe in this voodoo bullshit. No, no. Palmer does, because he's a thing. Because oh, oh. Palmer does. I don't know if he's one yet. No. Um, Palmer does. He's like chariots of the gods. Please quote something better than that. Please. <laughs> yeah. Don't bring me that Velikovsky bullshit. Come on. <laughs> Anyway, McCready's theory is is like dropping a theory about what's going on. They find it, it wakes up, it's pissed off and all that stuff. In the middle of his exposition, uh, Knowles comes in and drops a plot point right in the middle of it and then roller skates off and no one pays any attention to it. Yeah, he says, who left their dirty drawers in the, the, the kitchen trash can? And he just oh, throws well. it on the thing. Yeah. Oh, well, this doesn't mean anything it's later. It's probably not important. <laughs> now, then Blair does some research and it doesn't make him happy. How unhappy does it make him? Like Smirnoff and Gun, not happy. (laughs) He's super unhappy, yeah. Basically, the computer tells him, you're going to die. Everybody's dead. And if this thing gets off of of Antarctica, the whole planet will be assimilated in like 27,000 hours. Yeah. 
I don't know how long that is in like regular time. Doesn't like, seem like all that long. No, it doesn't. Considering, yeah. So the after they've discovered all this stuff, they decide let's put the gross monster, you know, that jumble of arms and legs. Let's put that in the storage room, and then yeah. I know let's leave Bennings in there all by himself, right? Yeah. And then Fuchs, well, what's the worst that could happen? <laughs> right. And then Fuchs, uh, you know, he's getting some stuff out of the storage room, and Windows leaves, and Bennings there by himself, and then we, we saw the blanket move because it covered with a blanket, and then gross strippy stuff comes out of it, and we're like, uh-oh. And then Fuchs runs up and, and needs to talk to McCready, and so they go off in the helicopter to talk, and Fuchs is like, uh, Blair's going to cuckoo bananas. He's, there's a lot of stuff he's not telling us. <laughs> <laughs> And um, isn't that when they see Blair running away from the helipopper? Yeah, yeah. well, Bennings. No, not right? Bennings. Oh, no, yeah, that's right. Blair, yeah, they that's right. Blair. Yeah, Blair, and, But yeah. then we cut back and Windows comes back in and he finds Bennings and he's, uh, he's, uh, he's got, he's not good. He's, he's, no. He's, that's not Bennings anymore because he's no. got all, he's got tentacles and goop all yeah, over. Yeah, he's not doing good, no. He's not. And no, he's not so, doing good. Windows hits the fire alarm again. You know, if you keep doing that, nobody's going to pay any attention to it. The fire might come in handy later. Yeah, 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 it just might. (laughs) So then uh, Benning stumbles outside and they catch up to him and uh, he starts roaring like people don't. Yeah. And his hands are all fucked up. And so they they burn him up. They burn him up. They burn him up. And there's this tiny little scene where. Gary's like he's my friend, and I've known him for ten years. And we're like, we gotta burn, we gotta burn him up because that's not him anymore. And they burn him up, and then it turns out that Blair, in the meantime, has destroyed the helicopter. Yeah, and he killed because they burn up the other body too, right? The right. arms and legs jumble. They kill yeah. that one, and while they're all doing that, they're like, "Hey, where's Blair?" And he's destroyed the helicopter. And he killed the rest of the dogs, and he destroyed the tractor. And the and radio. Then, and and then he goes on an old-fashioned crazy axe rampage while destroying <laughs> the radio. <laughs> basically, he's destroying everything with an axe. He's attacked windows, um, and he's shooting at anyone that comes near the door. And uh, he shoots the gun so many times at them after saying, I'll kill you, and then... <laughs> He, shoots, he empties the gun and then throws it, which is great. <laughs> Remember, guys, this is Wilford Brimley doing all yeah. of this. Yeah. And they finally pick up a table and they're going to rush him. And he picks up the axe and he <laughs> puts the axe into the table. And here's some trivia, guys. Um, that axe and that table were not props. And the axe came within half an inch of embedding itself into Kurt Russell's forehead. <laughs> That's why movie productions have insurance, folks. Yep. But they finally get him wrestled to the ground, and they punch him a few times, and Blair gets to go on a doped-up tool tool shed, like, time out. <laughs> yes. And they dope him out, and they take him out to the shed, and they're like, stay out here. You think about what you've done, young man. Yeah. Boy, Wolf of Brim- Brimley is really good at acting as if he's been doped up. <laughs> it's anyway, an easy character for him to find. Yeah. So they, stock up, they start talking about, how can we tell if someone's one of the things? And Copper's like, well, maybe I could do something with the blood. And they're like, good idea. 
And then somebody sabotaged the blood, Steve. All the blood is gone. Yeah, and then everybody suspects everybody, and everyone's yelling, and Gary could have had the keys, and it was copper, and they start fighting, and Windows has a freakout and tries to get a gun out of the gun cabinet, right? Yeah, yeah, and Gary draws on him, and he's like, don't you touch those guns, man. That's right, and he finally gets him to drop the gun, and then Gary steps down as station commander. And Childs is like, I'll take that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Parker uses his flip knife and says, I don't think so. And McCready gets the gun. And now he's in charge, right? Yeah, he's he's like, I think I'm the Kurt Russell around here. I'll run the show. That's right. And then they burn all the bloody uh, bags. Yeah. And then McCready makes a speech. And he's like, I know I'm a person. (laughs) And some of you have to be people, too, because if you're all aliens, you come and attack me. Yeah. So that means that some of you are not, and some of you probably are. We can't see what we'll, but we got to survive through the winter because we can't call anybody and we can't go anywhere now. And so he tells Fuchs, figure out something, right? Yeah. Yeah. And um, the first thing McCready does is that Copper, Clark, and Gary get a little morphine couch vacation because everyone <laughs> suspects them because of the blood. Right. right? They were the only ones Clark, who could have gotten to the blood, yeah. Because Clark spent a lot of time with the dogs, and Blair told McCready, watch Clark close. Yeah. So then McCready makes a secret tape, and he's like, we're all fucked. We're all goddamn fucked. I can't believe it. <laughs> He doesn't do that. No. It's just basically, everyone's paranoid and tired. And then he erases the tired part. You notice that? When he yeah, I did back? notice that. He, he goes yeah. back over it, yeah. Yeah. And so McCready checks in on Fuchs. Fuchs says, I'm working. I really need, I need Blair. He's like, well, you're not getting Blair. <laughs> oh, come on, man. And then while Fuchs is working, his lights go out and he lights a, like a candle. And then something walks in front of the candle, uh, in front of the camera in a jump scare, kind of. Except it doesn't turn out to be one of those stupid, it's a phone or it's a cat. We don't know who it was, because ambiguous is the name of the game in this fucking movie. And it gets even more ambiguous with Fuchs. You'll see what I mean in a second. So Fuchs gets dressed up, and he's got a flare, and he goes outside. And what does he find, Steve? What does Fuchs find? Oh, I can't remember what Fuchs finds. Hi, Steve. We're reviewing a film. I'm sorry. What does he find? I can't remember what what does he. I can't remember what he he finds. He finds some torn up clothing. Oh, that's. Oh, and it's it's McCready's. It's McCready's. It's McCready's jacket. Yeah. Because what they're starting to speculate is is that when this thing attacks people, it tears up their clothes when it does it. Right. Yeah. So everyone all of a sudden is like, we got to find Fuchs. They're like, look, okay. So they're looking around, and then they (laughs) they go out. This is one of the best reveal shots in the movie. They go out to go talk to Blair again because they want they're looking for Fuchs, right? right? And McCready and Nalls and who's the other guy? Windows. Windows, yeah. He opens up the little door, the little window to the door, and you see McCready, and he's talking to him, and he's like, Blair, have you seen Fuchs? We reverse shot, looking over McCready's shoulder into the room, and we see a noose. Yes. <laughs> And Blair saying, I want to come back and fight. I'm all better now. <laughs> yeah, I'm tired of being in the tool shed. <laughs> but they're like, nope, and they leave him there, right? <laughs> yep. So um, then they find Fuchs, and yeah. he's, he's all burned up. He's not good. Yeah, he's all burned up, and they're like, why would it burn? Why would the thing burn him? And then they're like, maybe he burned himself so it couldn't get to him. And guys, if you want an answer to what happens to Fuchs, you're not getting it, because this is what the movie is about, putting you in their situation. 
they aren't going to get the answers, so neither are you. Right. Okay? Or they don't really have the, the luxury to yeah. investigate it. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, then McCready sees that the light is on in his cabin, and he's like, come on, come on, Nalls, we're going to go check, check out my cabin. And they're like, he's like, Windows, you go back. And they're like, okay. And then Windows is back. And um, Mac and, and Nalls are gone for like 45 minutes, so they decide, okay, fuck it, we're locking them out. Right. They start boarding up all of the doors. And then Norris starts having a heart attack. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's just the start of the heart attack because this is a more realistic heart attack than the ones where someone just grabs a heart and falls over. <laughs> right. He just has. You can tell like he's having trouble breathing and yeah, and yeah. he's going ow and stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, then Nalls comes back and they let him in and he says he cut McCready loose because he found McCready's torn up clothes and he got scared. Right. 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 And they see him trying. They see McCready trying to get through the door, and they're not going to let him in. And then a window breaks in another room, and they go into the storeroom. And McCready um, has his has a flare <laughs> and a handful of dynamite. <laughs> and he's like, "Just back up, okay? Back the fuck <laughs> off! I'll blow everybody up." And they're like, "Okay, okay," but then they try to wrestle him down to the ground. And Norris gets thrown back, and now he's having a whole a whole big heart attack, right? Oh, it, yeah. It turns into quite a heart attack. Yes. yes, it does. Yes. So they're like, he's not breathing. So they go get Copper, who's like, who's been tied up on the couch. And Copper's like starting CPR and stuff. And he's like doing chest compressions and checking to make sure. And he gets the paddles out and he's going to charge him. And people are, you know, talking. And then, um, uh, uh-huh. it's he... Okay, the only way to do it is to describe it because um, so copper does one one thing on the the paddles and it doesn't right. work. So he's gonna do another one, and when he puts his hands down on Norris's chest, it opens up like a great big mouth with teeth <laughs> and bites off copper's arms. <laughs> Yeah, it does. <laughs> the copper falls off dead, I guess, and then um, gross stuff shoots out of Norris's chest, and it's like a spider, long-necked, human <laughs> head, gross intestines, arms, and legs creature, right? Yeah, yeah, and the, the head kind of breaks off on its own and falls on the floor. No, no, yeah, Norris's other head. Yeah. So they burn the they burn the first thing that comes out, and then they burn Norris's body, but his head is falling off on the ground, and then it shoots out this tentacle and drags it away from the fire, and then it grows spider legs and yeah. stock, stock eyes. <laughs> yep. All of this was fucking done without c- CGI, guys, by the way. <laughs> And then it starts, uh, you know, tippity-tapping it away. Yeah. Well, anyway. <laughs> Until Palmer has probably one of the best lines in the film. <laughs> you gotta be fucking kidding me. And they see it, and it's like, oh, shit, I've been seen. And then they burn that up with the flamethrower, right? Yeah. Whew. Talking about CGI. Oh, real flamethrower, real yeah. flames. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but all of this has given McCready an idea. Yeah. McCready ties everybody up. <laughs> Except windows. <laughs> Everybody's tied up in the rec room. And, uh, but, oh, before they do that, Clark does something stupid. Clark decides, I'm going to stab him. I, if he's the thing, I'm going to stab him with my little scalpel, and that'll kill the thing, because we've determined that the only thing that actually kills the thing is fire. But I'll stab him with the thing, right? To the yeah. scalpel. That doesn't work. It doesn't. What happens? McCready blows his head off. <laughs> he shoots him right between the eyes. That's right. And so then McCready 
then time ties everybody up. But now it's time for a blood test. And what is it? Why is he doing that? What's what, what is he doing? Well, McCready has figured out that the way the thing works is like every, every part of it can become a separate thing. Like every part of it is alive. So he figures if if it bleeds, it won't be like normal blood. The blood, if it's threatened, will try to survive. So That's he's right. going to burn the blood of everybody That's right. and see if it gets a reaction. It's like in Deep Space Nine. If you take yeah. a blood sample from a, from a shapeshifter, exactly. eventually that blood's going to turn back into a shapeshifter, right? Right, except in that you just put it in a little bottle and shake it up, you know? It's yeah. not like Dr. Bashir was like, now I'm going to heat up a wire and burn that motherfucker. <laughs> How's that feel, changeling? Huh? You like that? That, that would have been great. You like that? Huh? Yeah. Yeah, so that's that's what he does. <laughs> So yeah, so he's uh, first he tests uh, he tests windows and he tests the dead bodies, copper and and uh, and uh, Clark Clark yeah, and now he's gonna test uh, himself. He does himself. He says, "I'm gonna show you what I already know." Yeah, yeah. And he's like, "Gary, I knew you're the only person to get to that blood. That's why I'm gonna test you last." <laughs> and everything about the blood test is going great until Palmer. Uh, Palmer's blood screams and jumps out of the thing. <laughs> jumps out of the dish, yeah. Oh, and that's probably significant. Palmer starts to shake, and he has a real blank expression on his face. And he's tied up next to Gary and Childs. <laughs> and then he uh, grows taller, I guess? Yeah. His feet slam down, and then his head kind of bubbles and boils up and starts bleeding all over the place and then splits in half at the top and turns into a a, a mouth thing, I guess. <laughs> then he jumps up so hard that he slams into the ceiling. <laughs> yeah. And then when he comes down, he his head mouth <laughs> chomps down on Windows' head. <laughs> yes, it just basically like takes a bites a half of his body. Yeah, and he's yeah. like flailing around with, you know, child stuck in his mouth, and and then he throws not child windows in his mouth, and he throws yeah. windows away, and McCready can't shoot him with the flamethrower because his flamethrower is jammed. Wouldn't you, Kali? Uh, and you then, know, uh. yeah, and then he finally burns burns him up, and he just kind of walks past him like, thanks, dicks, and he busts out through the door, and he just falls down in the snow and then McCready throws a stick of dynamite on him which he lights by the way which I don't think he needed to do since he was throwing it at fire at a burning thing yeah and he blows it up right yeah and comes back in and windows is already turning into a thing so he burns up windows by windows sorry and uh well let's finish the test I guess (laughs) (laughs) anyway where were we (laughs) they test nulls nulls is fine yeah. They test Childs, Childs is fine, and then they test Gary, and we're like, oh boy, we know Gary's the thing. And they test Gary, and he's fine too. Gary's fine, yeah. And then Gary tells everybody that he's fucking done. He's done. <laughs> yeah, untie me from this fucking couch! <laughs> One of my favorite lines in the movie. <laughs> but now they gotta do Blair's blood test, right? Yeah. Okay, so they leave. They leave Childs. And they go out, and they're going to test Blair's blood, but, oh, what happened, Steve? The the, the tool shed is open, and Blair's not there. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Where is he, Steve? Well, they, they don't know, but, but they, they, they find a, a, a tunnel that, they, that he dug underneath the tool shed into the snow. Oh, why did he do that? Well, because he built a spaceship under it. 
you see? Oh, yeah, that's right. Well, the spaceship. Or, or as, as I think McCready says, oh, Blair's been busy out here by himself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he has. <sighs> and as they're going around trying to figure out what to do in the shed, Null sees Childs leave the, the camp. Yeah. And then all the lights go out. Hmm. And it turns out that the generator's been taken out. The generator's done, so they're on backup power, right? Yeah. And so the guys decide to do what heroes do, which is blow shit up. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, because they realize, I think, uh, yeah, McCready figures McCready out. McCready says it, yeah. Yeah, that the, says, the, the thing wants to freeze. So it's the, 110 the, degrees below zero. Yeah. Um, the thing wants to freeze. They're all dead anyway. They can't survive without generator. So they're going to blow up all the, the whole camp. They're just going to set everything on fire, right, Steve? Yeah. And that's what they do. They yeah. blow everything up. They destroy what remaining vehicles there are. They crash the tractor into the thing. They throw Molotov cocktails all over the place. And then they decide they got to go into the generator room, right? Yeah. And they go down there. And then, then McCready says, how's the generator? Can we fix it? <laughs> and what is, what is, uh, what does, uh, Gary say? Yeah. Well, he says, he says the generator, he said the generator's gone. And McCready says, can we fix it? And he's like, it's gone. <laughs> 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 so then they decide, okay, time to bring everything down into the ice. And they're setting up their, their dynamites. And, oh, look, there's Blair. And, uh, he... He does a thing. He does a thing to Gary. He does a, a thing. Yeah. To Gary's face. He does he, the he, thing like that 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 people do to kids when they smush their cheeks and like, oh, look at you. But but yeah, it's except the... that with this this time, it's like if you took your fingers and dug them into the meat of the child's <laughs> yeah. cheeks. If you rip their face like and off, you you could hear slimy, gross tentacles shooting down the kid's mouth, uh, yeah. presumably from the from your palm, and then it kind of. <laughs> We see him again, and it's like he turned his face into a handle, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and Nalls is like, hey, I'm going to go out here and see its sound that no one else can hear or something, right? Yeah. And we never see him again. No. And uh, McCready's like, oh, SpaghettiOs, time to, I think it's time to blow up everything. And he's got the dynamite thing with the plunger, and he's about to do it, and then the floor gets angry at him, I guess, <laughs> and chases him around a couple of times. Actually, the thing is under the floor. Yeah. And then the thing busts up out of the floor, and some stop-motion tentacles grab the plunger, and he's like, aha, now you can't blow me up, right? <laughs> right. Gotcha! And then it comes up out of the floor, and it's a th it's uh, it's the thing. It's got arms and legs and monsters coming out of it. And <laughs> mouths. And it's just so many things, Steve. There's a, yeah, yeah. And it's roaring, and it's, and it's got teeth, and it's so, so gross. And what does McCready do? He, he, he says, yeah, fuck you too. <laughs> and he throws the dynamite at it and blows it up. And he blows up everything. Blows everything up, yeah. And somehow he survived that. Yeah, well, he's, he's Kurt Russell. Yeah, I know. You know? Yeah, I know. So now everything is blowed up. Everything is destroyed. We hope to God that the, that the thing is dead. There's no way it is. It's got to be a piece somewhere that's not on fire, right? <laughs> you would think, given what we know about it, yeah. But McCready's exhausted, and he kind of sits down in the burning wreckage that was the camp. And who shows up, Steve? Why, it's Childs. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, Childs is a thing. 
Maybe. Oh, that's right. Amb- ambiguous. Uh, so Chow shows up, and they're like, are you a thing? And he's like, no. Are you a thing? It doesn't really matter anymore, does it? And they're like, yeah, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> Fuck it. We're fucking dead. You want a drink? And he's like, yeah, let's just sit here and drink. And so they sit there and drink. The end. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye, folks. <laughs> so, Steve, how do you feel about this bleak gory spook fest of a monster movie finally a monster that kills people <laughs> how do you feel about this motion picture classic the thing so here's the thing <laughs> um <laughs> this is a great example of why john carpenter when he is on is one of my favorite filmmakers um, because he plays to his strengths in this movie. He's he's smart. He he's artful, but he's not pretentious. There's there's a, a focus and a toughness to the film that allows it to have moments that are that are fleetingly beautiful and definitely have 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 some art and have been made with a with an artist's eye. But it never feels pretentious. It never feels like he's trying to impress you with you know how how artful he is with his filmmaking and i uh i really really appreciate that and it's the kind of thing that you get in really really good genre filmmaking that you don't get as much in more what you might call literary films you know more sort of straight dramas uh where where even very talented very good directors like you can tell if a given shot or a given scene or a given sequence is them showing off or trying to be virtuosos um, or trying to be deep or meaningful or whatever. You don't really get that in this movie. Like Steven Spielberg. Like Steven Spielberg. Or even, you know, like like Stanley Kubrick or like a lot of my favorite filmmakers where, you yeah. know, they're, they're like, yeah, this is some deep shit, right? Right? Uh, you know, and, somet- <laughs> and sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. Uh, mm-hmm. But but you don't get that from Carpenter at his best, even though he's capable of being smart and being very insightful and very artful in that way. And it's one of the wonder wonderful things about really good genre filmmaking really good horror films or sci-fi films or action movies is that because it is a genre piece and because there are formulas that they have to sort of at least touch on if not rigidly adhere to um it, it creates a structure in which they can sort of play with things so it doesn't come across as as artsy it comes across as as focused and as very lean which i think this movie is uh, a lot of the time um, yeah. It's very, very tight, very efficient, but it's not dry, and it certainly isn't unimaginative. Um, it has a really strong concept. It takes that beautiful turn midway through where it, it stops being about a threat from outside and becomes about a threat from inside and becomes about the, the suspicion and the paranoia. So it's not just a straightforward creature feature. It's them pitted against themselves and yep. their own uncertainty as they realize that any one of them could be the monster. And the the movie does a great job with the exposition. I made a joke earlier about the the uh, the exposition comp where it tells you how the cellular, you know, yeah. how the, the monster takes things over on a cellular level. But it does a really good job, apart from that, getting us to, to be able to understand how the creature works. So when Kurt Russell is explaining about the blood and about how each drop of blood can be its own creature and like that makes sense mm-hmm. to us and 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 it, it feeds into the threat it feeds into you know what they're up against it it really works really well um, obviously the special effects 
are top of the list of things you want to talk about when you're praising the movie. Yes, they're incredibly gory. Yes, they're gross. Mm -hmm. But I think the thing that a lot of the critics at the time missed, either because maybe they just weren't used to seeing movies like this, or they just had a natural sort of bias against gross-out movies or or graphic uh, special effects or graphic blood and gore effects, is that the imagery that is created with these gore effects is just indelible. It's, it creates these strong images that stick with you, that you can remember. And they're difficult to describe to people who haven't seen it, but you can see it in your mind. The warped, melted faces, the insect legs sprouting out of things, um, the tentacles, the thin little vein-like tentacles that shoot out of, of bodies when they've been taken over. It's so creative and so imaginative and and it's unsettling in a way it's not just gross out like oh look at the blood look at the freaky stuff like it's unsettling and otherworldly mm-hmm. um and I, that's something that i think a lot of truly the people truly alien truly alien it, yeah and a lot of the critics who dismissed it because of that i think just they didn't see it that way they didn't catch that that it's it's something truly strange uh, you mm-hmm. know, truly, truly uh, unique and otherworldly that, again, it just it adds to what the movie is about. The, the, it is, even though the title of this movie is The Thing, this this is a thing from another world. It's utterly different from the people that are that are facing it. Um, mm-hmm. the, the character is I think the characterization uh, relies a lot on the actors. You have a, a, a cast that has been filled with very strong actors who leave uh, an impression even when they're playing characters that have sort of minimal characterization, which I think was a very smart move. Again, Carpenter being a very smart, very efficient filmmaker, he knows he can put very, very uh, strong actors in these parts. And even if the part doesn't have a lot of character development, he knows, I mean, you put Keith David in a role, you're going to remember that guy. You're going to know when that guy's on screen again. If you put Kurt Russell in a role or Wilford Brimley or Donald Moffat, like these are actors that will carry these roles, even if there's not a lot of meat yeah. On the bones of the part, um, it has lots of homages to other films. Obviously, thing from another world is is the basis for for most of it. But there's also a wonderful shot when they come to the crater uh, that is an homage to 2001: A Space Odyssey, which is so yep. unexpected. Like you would never expect <laughs> a 2001 riff. Same in shot, this same movie. composition. Same shot, same composition. The Morricone score is very reminiscent of of the music that Kubrick uses in the in the scene on the the first scene on the moon when the astronauts on the moon discover uh, the monolith. Um, right. And it's it's when they discover the, the large crashed alien craft under the ice when they make their second trip out to investigate. Um, and, of course, there's also a little bit of alien in here as well. Um, and the, the, the success of alien, I think, was one of the factors that kind of jump-started well, the development weird of this movie. weird because I don't associate the two films at all. Yeah, I mean, it's not... I don't think it's a direct... You know, one follows the other, but you know the the claustrophobia of the scenes when they're inside. Um, yeah, I think there's a little bit of alien in there, um, but yeah, I mean, over, it's this this is a classic movie. This is one of those movies that that for whatever reason, cultural factors or or personal biases or lack of experience with these type of films, for whatever reason, the, I, I think most people today would agree that the critics at the time who dismissed it got this really really wrong. This is a fantastic movie. There's so much here going on. You can talk about this movie in so many different ways and, mm-hmm. and find things to appreciate. And it's, again, it's a great example 
example of how really well-executed genre filmmaking can produce really tight, really well-executed, really creative, just incredibly satisfying movies. So I really, really liked it. It's one of my favorite movies, too. Okay, my turn. Go for it. Please gush. Gush away, my friend. (laughs) So when you walk up to someone and say, the thing is one of my favorite movies... People go, oh, so you like gross stuff. And the gross stuff, I will admit, I like the gross stuff in this. I do. I like the gross stuff in this. I think it's well made. I think it's artistically beautiful, as weird as that sounds. For the amount of work that they put into the um, grosser effects, I think it's, it's, it's phenomenal. But that grossness works for the film. It was not put in there to attract people to the film, which was one of the things that it accused that it was accused of. That it's only gross to get teenagers in it to dare each other to go see the movie. <laughs> that is not the reason why these things are in the film. The gross effects are there for a reason. And the way this movie is set up, the reason mainly is is that we actually don't ever see the thing kill anybody, with the exception of maybe Windows. Right. Okay. We see we see people kill people. We see kill people. People kill people. The very beginning of this film, we see one guy <laughs> blow himself up. See another guy get shot in the eye. Um, McCready shoots another guy in the face. Oh, They're yeah. constantly threatening to kill each other. Uh, oh, and maybe uh, maybe Copper when Copper gets his arms bitten off. Oh right? yeah, sure, yeah. But we have the gross stuff in there so that we understand as the audience that we don't want to become or touch that thing. We don't want that happening to us. Right. It gives stakes to the characters. If it was an older science fiction movie, it would have been like, you go in a pod, you come out a different person. Like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which I'm going to be bringing up in a second. So the main thing that I love about this film is that it took a dumb premise. (laughs) (laughs) From a dopey movie, and then sat down and said, "Okay, well, what will make this engaging? It needs to be something about some. It needs to be about more than just goopy monster takes over people and kills them." And so, what they decided is, let's let's lean into the psychological aspects of these characters. Now, I've heard it said that we don't really care about these characters because we don't know anything about them. That is bullshit. We know enough about them. You know, know, some people said, oh, well, how come we don't have a backstory for McCready? How come we don't have a backstory for this person? I've made complaints about that, uh, about other movies before, but those were specific to those movies because those movies needed that for that care for us to give a damn about the character. Right. These characters are strong enough that we don't need a fucking backstory for them. We don't need to know which ones have kids or families or whatever back home. We don't need to see a picture of... We don't need to see McCready looking at a picture of his wife and kids living in the United States while he's off in Antarctica. These characters are strong enough, funny enough, and engaging enough for us to give a shit about them without needless backstory for us to get engaged with them. When I make those complaints, it's because the main character is so dead to us (laughs) that we would appreciate some any kind of backstory, right? We we give a fuck about Indiana Jones, but we don't get any of his goddamn backstory until the third movie. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Right? Up until that point, he's just a dude. He's a dude, and he's got a whip, and he's, like, super cool, right? <laughs> That's all you need. 
Yeah, and the same thing applies to this film. We get to their general personalities and stuff like that, and we get it out of the way without anyone actually saying who that person is. The exposition that's in here is specific to the story and filling in things that we may not necessarily come to a conclusion to or may be difficult to illustrate with the film, right? Yeah. There's no way that we're going to find out that it can take you over on the cellular level unless the scientist is there to see that and then say it can take you over on the cellular level. Unless we're going to do some kind of weird pan in in which we watch the cells taking each other over and then not explain it, which is possible, but not necessarily for this film. Yeah. Okay. There are certain homages that they are still throwing back to the 1950s, like a scientist explaining what the fuck is going on. (laughs) I love the use of color in this movie. Um, and this goes right back to the cinematographer and also to uh, and also to Carpenter. Um, the beginning of this movie, um, natural light. I mean, everything's white, but I mean, it's familiar. They're in the Antarctic. We expect everything to be white. Kind of this stark contrast where almost any color against white is going to wind up looking black. Um, and then as soon as they start to realize what's going on, as soon as the monster starts making itself known, the color palette of this movie changes and it starts becoming striking colors of purple and blue and red. And it's not because he's doing goofy 50s lighting. It's explained away as this is moonlight. This is the color of the flares that they're using. There's all of this other stuff. There's a great, there's two shots that are mirrored in the film. One of McCready prior to when he finds out what's going on and one after he finds out what's going on. He's sitting in the same room and he's sitting at the same table drinking the same shit. (laughs) But the first one, it's natural light. He's just sitting there. I can't remember what he's doing, just basically talking. And then after he finds out all this shit, when he's making his tape recording, he's sitting in there, and the lighting palette has shifted so that he's the back wall is blue, the outer corridor is, is has been dimmed down, and I think it's just slightly reddish. Um, that is a conscious, I, a conscious knowledge of tone shifts. That applies to not necessarily just the characters, but also to the film itself. So that you wind up becoming, no, things aren't, things aren't looking, things aren't good for these guys. Um, It's very difficult for a film to create its own rules and stick to them, right? So this movie has a lot of rules about the alien, about Antarctica, about the the world they live in, and people like establishing rules. But in movies like this, they also have a tendency to create these rules, especially in horror movies, and then fucking break them by the end. This one created the rules and then stuck the landing by saying, these guys don't live. Are you kidding? No, they don't live. <laughs> There's no way We've they possibly could. Yeah. several times that it's 110 degrees outside. If they destroy their own base, they're going to die. Right? Yeah. They establish how easy it is for people to get infected, and so there's only, there's very few options left for the characters other than the ending than what we got. I've mentioned several times during our recap that ambiguity, God bless it. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. This what is time with you got my it. mouth today? Ambiguity is the uh, name of the game in this film. And they stick to it. They're not going to give us answers for stuff if we don't need it, and these guys don't get it either. Okay? So if they're not going to get an answer, we're not going to get an answer. That puts us in their shoes so that we can be just as confused about what's going on as possible. We need to know what happened to Fuchs. No, you fucking don't, because you're supposed to take that and, and be just as confused as the other characters as to what's going on. We are never, ever, ever foreshadowed about who is or who is not uh, uh, one of the things. Ever. We get a lot of misleads. 
where we think, oh, that guy's acting weird. And then you look at another guy, oh, that guy's acting weird. Well, oh, that guy has a weird facial expression. Oh, that guy, maybe he's the thing. Maybe he's well, maybe he's the thing because he did that. Yeah. And each one of those were all misdirects because nine times out of ten they weren't the thing when we find out later. And they're doing that so that you are starting to think the same ways that the guys in the film are. Right? That's quality, quality filmmaking. <laughs> Others would have played their hand or overplayed their hand or, you know, whatever the fucking else. This one, this movie in- intentionally wants you to be in the same position that McCready's in. He can't trust anybody and he's tired. I mean, the film doesn't necessarily want you to be tired, but boy, you feel it in him. Yeah. Because this is a, this is a like, sleepless couple of nights. So, yeah, why is it one of my favorite films? I think it's because it does everything perfectly. I mean, just, like, everything perfectly, from beginning to end. And, um, boy, it pulls out every cinema trick in the book at the time, in 1982. And they made this movie for $15 million, and it still looks better than half the shit that's coming out now. (laughs) We we didn't need CGI, it didn't need all that stuff. I mean, there are matte paintings and split shots and and, um, forced perspective and and stop-motion animation and, and puppetry and all that shit. And it's good. (laughs) (laughs) So if you've never seen it before, see it. Maybe you won't get scared. Maybe you will get scared. Some people approach this as a sci-fi movie and they didn't necessarily get scared. Some people approach it as a horror movie, do get scared. Because it it can be a scary movie. Also, hey, no teenagers. No teenagers. Thank you, Jesus. Isn't it weird how sometimes when you make a movie and the main characters aren't teenagers, you make a scary fucking movie? It's weird. Isn't that weird? It's weird how movies can be scary and effective with adult main characters. Exactly. I don't know how that works. So what am I saying? I'm saying that I've seen this movie I don't know how many times, and every time I watch it, I get a deeper appreciation of it. I don't get bored. I don't fall asleep, which is amazing for me, considering how many times I've seen the film. (laughs) If uh, horror is not your cup of tea, if gross stuff is not your cup of tea, definitely don't see this movie. But it is, as far as I'm concerned, a classic film. Not a classic horror movie. Not one, you know, I'm not, it is a great movie, period regardless of genre. Okay? Okay. <laughs> Steve, classic or not classic? Oh my goodness, classic. Yeah, classic Me for sure. Me fucking too. So now it's time for us to not recommend something, Steve. Yeah. What are you not going to recommend? Oh, folks, if you <sighs> see this moving coming, avert your eyes, for they may turn into <laughs> dust, and that's kind of embarrassing. So, Steve. Yes. What movie do you not want people to see? Ooh, it's so scary. So here's the thing. Um, John Carpenter. Great. Oh, I see. You're going to raise him up, and then you're going to pick, take, put, take a big dump <laughs> on him. Is right. that it? I don't want him to get too <laughs> cocky in his old age. Well, you have uh, you're spoiled for choice, my friend. Uh, here's the, uh, John Carpenter. As I've said, when when he's on, when he's firing on all cylinders, one of my favorite filmmakers, regardless of genre, regardless of whatever. He's just he's made some of my favorite movies. When he's off. Eh, not so great. And uh, starting in the late 80s, early 90s, he had sort of an off phase of his career. where he's, he How kept... about uh, Confessions of an Invisible Man? Oh, Memoirs of an Invisible Man. Yeah. Memoirs, whatever. Oh, like, boy, I committed yeah. that piece of shit to memory. Yeah, like, I don't even remember. I barely remember it exists. No, uh, but it's the finest performance of Chevy Chase. Uh, I believe you're forgetting about a little film called Christmas Vacation. How can I forget when I really want to hurt myself? I put that on. 
<laughs> oh, so yeah, uh, John Carpenter had a, a sort of a creative down period in the in the the nineties, and this film I'm going to not recommend, unfortunately, is from one of it, it's from that phase of his career, and it's a shame because not only is it by Carpenter, who is capable of making really really great movies, but it also stars some of my favorite actors who are sort of slumming it, and in some cases really trying to do their best to elevate it, and and in other instances are just kind of there picking up a check. Um, I want to guess. Can I guess? Oh, please. please. Oh, I bet you're going to get it. Guess. Go ahead. Is it Ghosts of Mars? No, it's not Ghosts of Mars. Although that is Damn a good it. one. That is a good <laughs> bad one. Yeah. No, no. It's the 1995 version of Village of the Damned. Oh, boy. Yeah. Of course, this was originally made in the 60s. Um, and, and this is not that version. This is uh, the 95 John Carpenter version. Um, and a really fantastic cast. Christopher Reeve is in here. Uh, Mark Hamill. Uh, Kirstie Alley. There is, uh, some, oh boy! Some, well, I I enjoy all of these actors, and 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 they've all done excellent work in other parts of their careers, but not so much here. Um, the the main thing about this that that sort of distinguishes it as a not recommend type of movie is just how limp and uninspired the whole thing is. It just, it feels like, and I think Carpenter himself said some years later that this was basically just a work for hire thing for him. And it wasn't something that he really had strong feelings about. He was hired to do it. I think he did a He did a rewrite on the script and he directed it and it wasn't like a, a passion project of his. And you can kind of tell like it's, it's very workmanlike. It's very competent, but there's nothing really to distinguish it as a carpenter film and it's just sort of oh okay that was nice so if you want to see <laughs> if you want to see a much better creepy child movie watch the original village of the dam but uh if you want to see john carpenter uh, at the top of his game after watching the thing do not see the 1995 version of village of the dam that is my not recommendation Oh, good, not recommendation, Steve. <laughs> Thank you, Master. I tried now, to please you. <laughs> yeah, damn right. Anyway, I, it's now my time. And as you know, I like to take a movie from the same year that the movie that we just reviewed came out. And so it's 1982, mm -hmm. and everybody is upping their game. Blade Runner came out, which, whether you think it's a boring piece of shit or something that's fantastic, you cannot deny that that movie still looks good today, as did The Thing, as does E.T. for the most part. A lot of movies came out that really brought their A-game, and some movies came out and I don't even know if they tried. <laughs> <laughs> A little movie came out, and it's a giant monster movie, and you're like, Jason, you like monster movies. I do, when they're good. Or they're so bad, they're good. And this almost becomes so bad, that's good. You might like it because it's so bad, that's good. But this one is too stupid <laughs> to be good. <laughs> Calm down, Master. Remember your blood pressure. No. <laughs> the movie I'm telling you not to watch is also a horror movie with a monster. Ooh. And it stars Michael Moriarty. Yes, I said that. Oh. He's in it. Oh, boy. And David Carradine. Oh, no. And it takes place in New York. And no, it's not some weird version of King Kong that you've never heard of. It's stupider. It's called Q, Ooh. the Winged Serpent. Check out this, kids. It's about a gigantic dragon thing. Basically, a giant dragon 
that has made its nest in Christ in the Chrysler building, and it p- flies out and it picks off people. And also, there's an Aztec cult somewhere in New York that's killing people at the same time. But here's the best part, kids. Cue the winged serpent kills people in broad daylight in a city of eight million people, <laughs> and nobody has ever seen the fucking thing. <laughs> According to this, he flies directly with the sun, so no one, when the people look up, they don't see it. But I would like to point out how fucking impossible that is. You can't be in front of the sun for everybody. That's right, motherfuckers, (laughs) but there's extended sequences in which he picks off, uh, apparently everybody has a pool on the top of their buildings, because there's like two people who are sunbathing, they get picked off from the top of their Mm. buildings, and we have scenes in which people in New York are getting splattered with blood and just looking up going, what? what? What's going on? I, I have blood on me. And they see nothing. <laughs> and the special effects are crap. I like stop motion when it's good. This is not good. This is war. This is bad. It's bad. Maybe if it was made in the 1950s, it'd be passable, but it's, you know, it's got the boobies. <laughs> <laughs> It's got David Carradine mumbling his way drunkenly through the film. (laughs) We have Michael Moriarty just trying to earn a goddamn paycheck. (laughs) So I don't recommend. Maybe you'll like it. Maybe you'll find it stupid enough to laugh at. But you better be good goddamn drunk when you watch it. And that's it, Steve. Halloween is over. Oh, no. Well, they will not see or hear from us again for another year. Can you, you believe it? You mean we won't be able to keep doing these characters? Well, they won't hear from you, but I sneak in whenever I fucking That's can. That's right. You are shameless. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> anyway, hey, Steve. Yeah. Time for my elixir. We've got to do this again with another movie. What? Yeah, that's the that's the idea. And once again, which has now become late seating tradition, I didn't even bother to clear it with him. (laughs) (laughs) Yay! I have no idea what's coming. Well, now that we've done a whole month of monsters... Yes. I think it's time for us to do a slightly cult classic film, but also a classic film because enough people know about it, and it's inspired other things, and I didn't like it when I saw it. (laughs) Oh, boy. Which at this point was like 30 years ago. But lots of other people seem to like it. And we're going to rewatch it and see if it deserves its reputation. The movie that we're going to see stars Winona Ryder Ooh. and that other jerk. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that, that's a lot of territory you just opened up there. I can't, I can't remember his name now. I want to say Chris Christopherson, but that's totally wrong. <laughs> He's the kid who thought he was Jack Nicholson. Oh, oh, Christian Slater. Thank you, Christian Slater. See, I was close, close with Chris Christopherson. Yeah, you were close. That's right, Winona Ryder and Christian Slater in that movie that may or may not have a lot to say about something. <laughs> I don't know what it's about, but we're going to rewatch it and see if it lives up to its reputation. The movie that we're going to review next time around is Heathers. Oh, boy. Yay! And that's it for late seating. This has been Jason. Someone please get all of this guts off me, Harding! (laughs) 
And this has been Steve. I can't wait to take off these hump shives. And go see a movie this week. And remember, I just cannot believe any of this voodoo bullshit. There's no voodoo here. I, we're talking about aliens, Childs. It's aliens vo- take over people's bodies, goopy and gross. Yeah. What part of voodoo do you... What, wait, does voodoo come from space for you, Childs? Well, it's got to come from somewhere. Yeah, Jamaica! For real? It's not a planet, Childs. Childs, don't look out the window. Wait, it, are you... It's, it's not an alien thing? Look, okay, there's only one alien that has dreadlocks, and he predominantly lives in South America when he comes to visit on his little hunting trips. Jamaicans are people. Who told you that Jamaicans are people, child? So, South America's not voodoo either. Oh my god, okay, can we do a quick rundown? Childs, what else is voodoo in your book? Mexico. (laughs) Bye, everybody! (laughs) Are you gonna say goodbye? Bye, everybody! Jeez! Sorry, I was, I was, I was, I was just enjoying my child's impression. Forgetting your good graces. I'm sorry. True horror. That is happy Halloween. Well, what do we do? Why don't we just report a report a (laughs) codga? And let me take a run at that again. Why don't we just report a podcast? Report a podcast. <laughs> we could do that too. Yes, I would like to. This podcast is uh, <laughs> besmirching the ending of the thing. They're too irreverent. They need to show <laughs> the movie the proper respect. Okay. <clears throat> Late seating is a Let Me Listen podcast production featuring Steve Shives and Jason Harding. Produced by Jason Harding. Theme music Rolling at Five, composed and performed by Kevin McLeod. You can find more Let Me Listen podcast productions at our website at www.letmelistenpodcast.com. You can also find us on Stitcher, iTunes, or just about anywhere you download podcasts. Late Seating is a listener-supported podcast. If you would like to support Late Seating or any of the other Let Me Listen productions for as little as $1 a month, please visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Let Me Listen. And... Thanks for listening.